2: This is the Starship Sova, everybody welcome, hello and welcome to show 498, I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone, I hope everyone is fine and dandy. We've got a glorious day outside today as well, So, and we've got a glorious show. Two stories, we've got a short story and the main fiction. And I'm going to be interspersing it with a little bit of ramble, chatter, I've got lots to talk about. Before we get into the main show, just a congratulations to all the Hugo winners out there as well. You know, it was um remarkable event because I, I watched, I, I kind of listened, not listened to it, but I watched it through the eyes of Jeremy, who was actually over there. You know, I mentioned Jeremy flew over to Helsinki and I was just following his tweets and he just sounded like he had a blast. So on behalf of Starship Sova. I'm thanking everyone who kind of came up to Jeremy, who kind of had a chat with him. He just had a whale of a time and he's off. He's a waste. Gallivant now, we're all over Eastern Europe, I think. So, fantastic. So, again. Congratulations to everyone who kind of taken part in, in the kind of Hugos and who were kind of, you know, hoping it win a, a little Hugo award. I'll tell you what is coming in today's show then. Like I say, first up is the main fiction. It is My First Duty by Eric Reynolds, which was originally published in Galaxy's Edge. Then we have the main fiction, which is A Pack Horse for Your Silly Memes by Rebecca Devandra. That is all coming in today's Sure, I do hope you will stick around and enjoy it. The short fiction is My First Duty by Eric Reynolds. Like I said, it was originally published in Galaxy Edge. Eric T. Reynolds is the editor-publisher with Headley Ryle Books and has edited over 40 highly acclaimed anthologies, collections and novels. His short fiction has appeared in Galaxy's Edge, Sci-Fi Journal, several indie press publications and had several non-fiction science articles published about space exploration and the history of technology. He is a member of the Science Fiction Writers of America and Broad Universe. You can visit him on Facebook at Eric T. Reynolds. And he says he blogs occasionally at Eric ericreynolds.livejournal.com. Now this story is narrated by Jason... Jason... Sorry, it's lost... bird me... Tongue man. Jason Satterlund. Satterlund has been writing and working on films for over 25 years. He has extensive experience in all areas of production, including directing, writing, cinematography, and editing. He travels the world producing feature films, television series, commercials, music videos, and documentaries. He is the only person ever to conduct a high, a, high, a night shoot in the ancient city of Petra and the first person in America to use film lenses on HD camera. Sattelund Roth directed the award-winning feature film The Record Keeper, which premiered at the Reindance Film Festival in London and is currently on a worldwide festival circuit. He is also the director of the Star Wars fan film The Force and the Fury, viewable on YouTube. When he isn't busy directing his own projects, he enjoys teaching filmmaking workshops, sharing the filmmakers of the future. Should I say Shaping the filmmakers of the future. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present.
0: My First Duty by Eric T. Reynolds When I reached the edge of the plateau, I stopped to clean the lunar grit for my ankle and knee joints. Lunar regolith looks like dust, but it's composed of microscopic shards that can damage the mechanisms of automatons like me. It's more harmful to humans, particularly when inhaled, and can work its way into an environmental suit. That's why old Marvin stayed back in the colony, and I was the one venturing out. I ran a sweep program to clear the contaminants, then proceeded over the edge of the plateau, following the ancient trail of bootprints down into the valley. My timing was correct. A wide swath of sunlight streamed through the gap in the Northwest Mountains, casting light across the valley floor. I had enough time for my work to survey the abandoned mines for spare parts before the night returned to the valley. Otherwise, there was no hurry. Old Marvin back in the colony was in no rush for what I had planned. The ancient metal structures stood naked out on the valley floor, glinting in the horizontal sunlight, casting long shadows that draped up the eastern range. The rest of the valley's desolation surrounded the complex. The trudge downhill was easy. I made my way down to the edge of the mines in a couple of hours. I would have enough time to find what the old hermit back in the colony up on the plateau needed. But it was no longer a colony now. Its domes and tunnel complex once housed thousands. Now, just one. Old Marvin. Thinning grayish beard, ratty hair down past his shoulders, and no hair on top. Common among some older humans. He was one of the last to remain on Luna during the abandonment. What happened to the rest? I did not know. Lunar life is difficult, and Old Marvin's appearance showed it particularly since his last companion had died several years before. Old Marvin had tried to cope with it, but he descended into a sad fraction of himself, and it became my responsibility to take care of him. For all I knew, he was the last of humanity, and this made my job more important. If he ceased, so would humanity. When his last companion died, Old Marvin said that he was then the most famous person, loved by all of humanity. Assuming, of course, he loved himself. But that was questionable nowadays. I didn't understand his logic, but that wasn't my job. He didn't show great love for himself. He just existed in what was left of the colony on that small plateau. He always appeared happy, even if he cared nothing for the rest of the universe. Each trip to the mines grew more challenging, for I had scavenged most of it on previous trips. But today's needs were different. Old Marvin was good that way. Whenever I came up with new ideas, he didn't protest my desire to experiment. He never criticized my lessened cognitive abilities and my imperfections that resulted from deteriorated aging circuits but maintaining the colony to keep him safe was top priority over self-maintenance. Colony maintenance and taking care of him required innovation during these times of no-supply ships from Earth. Skeletons of rockets stood around the edges of the mine complex. Broken-down lunar crawlers sat scattered about the plain, some near the non-working airlocks that protruded from the central mine structures, others near the boulder fields all abandoned, worthless, stripped of usable parts by me on previous trips. Old Marvin didn't need anything large or heavy this time, just a couple of items for something I had been planning for him. Today's needs sent me to an old electromagnetic launch track that once catapulted the ore charts into orbit to the awaiting freighters. The track stretched the entire length of the valley, angling up onto a spur of the eastern mountains to their summit where it would let go of the carts being flung into orbit. I hiked through the mine complex, past the empty towers, and at last reached the launch track. Plenty of sunlight still remained. I was confident I would find what I needed here, what old Marvin needed today. A cart still sat on the track where it had been left, Years before. It was box shaped, and my unlatching the upper lid exposed the once precious ore still within a rocky mix of dirty water ice. But that wasn't what old Marvin needed today. I let the lid flop over. Its aged hinges were in adequate condition after a minute of dismantling them. I retrieved a pair of small springs. I stashed them inside my pack while examining the rest of the cart. The small veneer rockets were still intact, and I suspected they still worked. But old Marvin had no need for those. The lid's latch would be useful. That was all I needed to take, so I headed back through the mine complex, took a side trip into a supply dome for a spare airlock maintenance kit, then hiked back up towards the plateau. I pulled myself up onto the plane. The lonely domes and towers of the colony stood stark on the lunar horizon as I approached the colony's protruding airlock. The entrance was dark, so I switched to my internal batteries and entered through the outer airlock. After surveying the inner airlock, I determined the kit materials would suffice. I would soon get to that. But first, I headed down to Old Marvin's residence, down the sloping hallways lined with aging conduit that led to the dark habitat levels. As my lamp's spotlight danced around the corridors, I made a reminder to myself to scavenge for replacement lights on my next trip out. But that wasn't urgent. Old Marvin wouldn't be venturing out. I went around the familiar turns and down two more levels than into old Marvin's home. My lamplight flooded his place, and he was there waiting for me. "'smiling as always, reclining in his chair. "'I said, I've retrieved some items. "'He didn't say a word, just smiled like he usually did. "'I dropped my backpack onto his desk "'and pulled out the pair of springs "'I'd retrieved from the mine ore cart. "'I said, I believe these will work, "'and I have something else I think you'll enjoy. "'I placed the latch mechanism on his desk.' as I grabbed one of the springs and attached one end to his jaw right behind his right molar, the other end to a hole I had previously drilled behind his upper teeth. I tightened a spring, and old Marvin's sagging mouth angled closed. I attached the other spring to his left jaw, grabbed the bony chin, pulled it open slightly. Then I let the mouth snap shut to test the mechanism. I said, It's nice to be able to close your mouth, isn't it? He didn't say anything. He just kept smiling, his teeth now clenched. Most of his skin was gone, and a few of his original organs remained, but he otherwise resembled his original self. I said, A little later I'll attach that latch to your chin and nose, and leaving a small gap will take some pressure off those new springs. But for the moment... I need to get back out to the inner airlock. That seal that failed when I was working on it three years ago still doesn't allow the airlock to keep any air in this place. Now that I can continue working on it, we can start pressurising the colony again. It'll be nice, won't it?
2: There you go. Big thank you to Eric. Eric, thank you so much, sir. Excellent. And Jason, please, come on. Back, back. Come back, come back, we'll have you back, sir. Thank you so much. Now while I'm kind of chatting on there, I keep losing my breath, you know me kind of voice Ooh, I'll tell you why, why that is. I've been, you know, I've got me little allotment there, and I've got me kind of polytunnel with all the kind of peppers and chilies in there and loads to be quite honest. Well now they're starting to come come good. And the other night on Facebook I, I made like a kind of hot sauce and I put a couple of pictures on there and I got a load of kind of comments you know what I mean Oh, the mouth drooling mouth drooling now that was just a test for today's sauce which we've just made my son Reed and myself have just made it it's like a sweet hot hot, mango fruity sauce and man I put that on Facebook yesterday oh and we're nice to have like a a science fiction name for this sauce you know what I mean just a kind of like a rift on science fiction. I bet I've gotten. Because I posted on my me, me own Facebook page. And I think Starship Sofa one as well. I bet you're talking about. Nearly 170 comments. All together. All sorts. Spicy Uranus. I like that one. Scoville 451. Little rift there. I have a mouth and must scream. There is so many. Do you know what I mean like. Ender's Salsa, River Dam, now I'm not sure what River Dam, but there's been loads on the kind of the rift on the Dune novel, you know, Spice and all the Spice mining and everything like that. Ring World, (laughs) Revelation Spice, Burn Your Azimov, Ender's Arse Game, Taste to Terrify. And you know what I was thinking of doing? I was thinking of actually doing three sources one for Far-Fetched Fables. One for you know Tales of Terrifying. One for, for Starship Rover. And would that be a possibility? Well, like I say, I've just made this one. This Fruity Mango Hot Spice. And it is gorgeous, man. But it takes your breath away. Do you know what I mean? It's It's got some kick. <laughs> so, that's what I've been doing. Have a look over. I'll put some pictures on. I've got... The ones we've made there now. I've got four sample pop little bottles. You know those little kind of met one where they like, look like they're a Pilsa lager bottles, but they're just tiny little ones. You only need a little bit, mind you. That'll last you a year. I'm going to give out four of them on Facebook. So you know, pop over there and see if you can. You, if you if you wonder one. For well, I'm like see, I'm I'm stuck on a name. Well, I'm not stuck on a name. We've got that many names. Do you know what I mean? It's just, um, and like I say, there's loads of being riffed and on, you know, just science fiction themes as well. Mars Attacks. <laughs> Mars Attacks, my arse. <laughs> Extends life Salsa. 42. That, I, I, I like that one as well. 42. The Desolation of, ah, Go for Lunch. The Perils of Fluorine. I'm not sure but that one stands Left Hand of Hotness. The man in the flame and hot castle, a fire upon the deep, deep, altered Caspian, heartburn games, the hitchhiker's guide to the restroom that's a good one as well. The green chili slice source of earth. I could honestly, man, there's hundreds. Well, there's about 180. And like I say I'm really pleased with the way this sources came out, so hey, you know. Anyway, I'm i I'm off again. Let's get into the main fiction. It is A Pack Horse for Your Silly Memes by Rebecca Devendra. And it was originally published in Outliers of Speculative Fiction. Rebecca is a, f- a figure artist and speculative fiction writer living in Boston. She serves as a first reader for the magazine of fantasy and science fiction. She's also a mum of three cacophonous early rising children. She's probably in her pyjamas, but I love this. I love this. She has an emergency collar shirt for video calls. I've got one of them as well. Check out what I work at Rebecca Devindra Dot com. This story is narrated. Guess it was narrated by our very own Amy H. Sturgis. I'm going to give you the official bio that Amy goes by. Amy H. Sturgis holds a PhD in intellectual history from the Vanderbilt University and specializes in both science fiction and indigenous. Indigenous. I can't even say it, man. It's just. Scalded me tongue. American Studies. Since 2008, she's been contributing monthly looking back at genre history segments for Starship Sofa. Editor-in-chief of Hocus Pocus Comics and faculty at Lignore Rhyme University. Sturgis lives with her husband in the foothills of the Blue Ridge Mountains in North Carolina. Learn more about her award-winning work at amyhsturgis.com So, The Starship's Over is Very Proud Present A Pack Horse for Your Silly Memes by Rebecca
3: Devendra I am eating dinner very contentedly when my fetus interrupts my thoughts. Pickles? Pretty please? I sigh and look down at my gigantic belly, the little limbs contained within making visible movements as the request is followed up with encouraging kicks. I push one of the stray limbs. An elbow? Away from my ribs. Sure, Muffin, I'll get to the fridge. I don't know if it's a girl or a boy, but I call it Muffin. I can tell that the researchers at the Johns Hopkins Xenobiology Lab think it's stupid, and I think that's partly why I do it. They've done sonograms, and they claim they have a good guess at the sex, but I don't care to know. There are a team of them there that I see regularly, and they are all nice except Cecil, who insists I call him doctor, even though everyone else around me has a Ph.D. or an M.D., and we're on a first-name basis. Do not worry about Cecil. His unenhanced intelligence could not even ever comprehend the exponential growth of something as simple as electromechanical computers— He probably thinks a vacuum tube is an attachment to a sweeper. Yeah, that doofus. I can feel a tickling sensation on my neck when Muffin experiences amusement. I feel it now. My sister Samantha clears her throat, and the buzz of inconsequential conversation around our family dinner table dies down. I just want to say that Mark and I are expecting again, she says with a blush. This is her seventh, so the reactions are a bit lackluster, albeit polite. We all clapped and cheered for kids one through four, but after a while the thrill dies off. So we all go about eating, after some general expressions of goodwill, going about our business as if she had just remarked on the weather. I've been pregnant for five years now, so nothing Samantha says will ever top that, her PhD be damned. My family is never quite sure how to act around me. I listened to a podcast you were on, Diana, Samantha says to me when I sit back down, my plate stacked with pickles from my sojourn to the refrigerator. Did you have sex with an alien? My nine-year-old nephew asks. Price, Samantha says shrilly, don't be rude. It's okay, I say, taking another mouthful of soup. I wink at Bryce. I don't kiss and tell. Wow, he says, his eyebrows disappearing into his bowl cut. He takes his glasses off to wipe them. Everyone thinks I'm an alien, so unoriginal. To be fair, you give off that vibe. I've been right under their noses for the entirety of their lives. Soon, they'll see me as an equal. My little niece appears at my elbow. Can I feel you, baby? I put her hand on my belly, and Muffin gives an obligatory tap. She brightens up and grins. Do you, baby, dweem? You know, I'm not sure. "'I bet he dreamed bow werewolves. My neck tickles. "'Were you nervous on a real-life podcast?' Bryce asks. His front teeth stick out over his bottom lip. Samantha frowns, but she is actually interested in my answers, so she doesn't correct him. My parents, my brother-in-law, and my aunts and uncles look uncomfortable, but they are listening as the kids chatter and run around the table. "'A little,' I say. "'What a lie. You had to poop the whole time.' "'Shush, you. I'm so glad that nobody else can hear you. "'Did you know what they would be asking ahead of time?' Samantha asks. "'Some of the questions, pretty standard stuff, they ask about the outage, "'but I just tell them Muffin's conception on that day is probably just a coincidence. "'I still don't know what happened that day,' my brother-in-law says. "'Mark remembers the day clearly because the outage interrupted his children's streaming kitty show time.' He's a stay-at-home dad and very neurotic. The last minute of every day planned. Nobody really does, I reply with a shrug. As far as we know, it was worldwide, but the Chinese still won't participate in the conversation. Merging with you was quite fun, like jumping into a pool and everyone noticed the ripples before they quelled. I'm glad it worked for both our sakes. The outage was cool, Bryce adds excitedly. Some of those Wi-Fi lights really did go out, and nobody could use the Internet. Everyone says that. It was different for me. I'm not exactly national news, but there are some rumblings that slip through, and I'm free to talk to people, like the ones who run that podcast, who put my story together with the outage. Muffin thinks the politicians want it that way. I'm studied, watched, but only just enough— that way nothing is hidden, but I'm also not some trending topic. The integration process took longer than estimated. This kind of hybrid is unique, but ultimately rewarding for both of us. I hope so. For you, I mean. I got my reward already. The human mind is fascinating. Do you know that if the speed of human thought could be increased a millionfold, a subjective year would pass in 30 physical seconds? We can't do that now, not without some help. Am I really useful to you? I'm not sure you can get me to do what you want me to. More useful than artificial intelligence, yes. That's been our only medium so far, and it's not working. Silicon-based hardware is not as pliable as living neurons. Machines might catch up someday. With some help. But humans need to get there first. The conversation around the table lulls, like it does at most family dinners, so I decide to go to bed early. I give Samantha a hug and tell her I'll see her at the lab in the morning. She pats me on the shoulder, and I ask her what she's thinking. "'Oh,' she says, "'it's just odd to think that when the world ends, it will start with people trying to get their internet to come back on for the first twenty minutes of it.' She lets out a dry laugh. It strikes me as darkly funny.' I'm not too sure what to say to her, so I go upstairs. Muffin and I have agreed that we are going to be revealing some plans to the lab tomorrow. Ever since this pregnancy, my body is more efficient when I rest, so I only need about three hours of sleep before I can start over again. I go to the lab early. Samantha walks in after me, large coffee in hand. She's rather bug-eyed and walks with a hunch, since she's always leaning over paperwork, as if commanded to do so at gunpoint. I'm so absent-minded this morning that I forgot to give the barista his tip, she says, as she sets her messenger bag on one of the desks. The strap gets tangled in her frizzy blonde hair, and I watch her awkwardly extricate herself. How much do you tip a barista, I ask? I give twenty-five percent. So that would be... You don't know how to calculate a tip. Hey, you're looking at the gal who thought Fibonacci was a popular pizza place. <sighs> right, she says with a sigh. You were hopeless in high school. During my first trimester four years ago, trimester being an estimation before I had a visible belly bump, I met with Samantha in her office and demonstrated Muffin's knowledge of Dijkstra's algorithm for shortest paths. I had no idea what it was but I wrote down what Muffin told me, something about a bunch of lines and numbers. Samantha's jaw dropped. She had me do it a few times before she called in some of her colleagues. I thought Dijkstra's algorithm would impress her. Our infants can do it. Very simple. If you say so, I still can't figure out why we use letters in math. All mathematical symbols represent truths one can apply to reality. Neato. "'Samantha had to explain to the lab that I failed high school math. "'They didn't care. "'They told her I'd probably learned a few tricks to play with her. "'And then you showed all of them your medical records.' "'It took them a while. "'Her colleague Samuel saw the test results showing my brain tumor "'and apologized to me and told me there was nothing anyone could do. "'I remember you laughed.' Because he was missing the point, I told him to look at the other tests. The one I took after the outage? His mouth was open for so long, I thought flies would find their way in. He and your sister insisted on doing their own tests to make sure the results were true. Like any good scientist, I didn't mind. The results were clear. You were cured, and they could not help but take us seriously. Samuel walks in. He's the cute one. He's dark-skinned and in shape and always wearing these ridiculous horn-rimmed glasses. He has his doctorate in physics, so he consults Samantha whenever she runs her algorithms through the computer. Is that what you think she does? How funny. Hey, man, you picked me. Should have done your research. Nonsense. I find you charming. How's Muffin? Samuel asks. He is the only one who calls it, Muffin. I beam at him and rest my hands on my large belly. Great, actually. It told me the other day that we're more useful than machines because our brains are squishier. I see, he says, raising his eyebrows. Any chance Muffin can speak directly about that? Up for it? Only if you are, of course. Muffin's game, I say, and I close my eyes. It's always weird. It's like I'm outside viewing myself, but I am myself, neither a dream nor reality. All tactile senses are siphoned away. I only remember things like what my tongue feels like against my teeth or what my skin does when I'm cold. My brain remembers how to tell my body to breathe, but in this state, it doesn't bother. This breathless, almost ethereal existence is something unbodily yet necessarily tethered to it, like a rock holding down a balloon. I watch myself sitting in front of Samuel with my hands on my belly. I motion for a pencil. God, I'm always annoyed by how my hair looks from the back. I'd like to speak to you today about the potential of human neurons, I hear myself say. I'm twirling the pencil in my hand, making it cartwheel from finger to finger. You mean, like, conditioning them? Samuel asks. Sort of. The human mind is pliable, or as Diana described it, Your brains are squishier. Yes, well, Samantha pipes in, the human brain might have a lot of potential, but that only shows how weak it really is. The human brain needs to work to understand higher mathematical concepts. There are no shortcuts. Intelligence must be slowly kindled like a fire. Unless... Are you trying to make a shortcut? I see myself smile smugly, and I form my hand into a fist and balance the pencil perfectly on the tips of my knuckles. Samantha and Samuel look at each other, Samuel's mouth slightly agape. We are interrupted. The door opens to announce the arrival of Cecil, waddling in with his walrus mustache bristling and sporting his characteristic glare. "'Meanings are not to start with Subject Alpha until all members of the team are present.' He bellows. He pulls a blood-pressure cuff from his bag and wraps it around my arm with evident irritation. "'We didn't get that far, doctor,' Samuel says. "'Muffin was just starting.' Cecil mutters to himself after taking the blood-pressure reading and then slams his papers onto his desk and falls back into his chair, which squeaks under his girth. "'Please continue, Subject Alpha,' Samantha says softly. "'I believe you are going to talk about artificial intelligence.' No, I say. AI is an inefficient undertaking now, When the human mind will give me what I need. You must give the human brain more credit. Sure, it's the size of a grapefruit, but it can do things like recognize faces, a feat that the best computer cannot do without giant servers maintained by multiple personnel. You see, I am interested in intelligence amplification. We have touched on this before— What if one could legitimately manipulate human neurons to produce the perfect algorithm? Yes, but what does the perfect algorithm do? Samuel asks. And why do you in particular want to do it? Because I want to be born now. Ludicrous, Cecil scoffs. Such a thing is pure fantasy. We are not capable of producing an intelligence explosion. We deal with science, not pure imagination. Considering the circumstances, that assertion is pretty laughable to me. Cecil wants to maintain that I'm just batty, but his duty to science makes him grudgingly accept me. He resents being assigned to the xenobiology lab. It was going to lose funding until I appeared, and the fascination with my cancer cure put enough pressure on academia and certain NSA advisors to assemble this team. He harbors hope that some psychologist will come swooping in and declare I've got a rare medical condition and that my mad ratings will go down as the biggest hoax in history. To be fair, the Internet has exploded with conspiracy theories about me. My favorites are the men who want to have sex with me. Seriously, what the hell? Science suffers without imagination, Samuel chimes in. All innovation is a leap at first, and then reason catches up. "'Samuel, Samuel, how I love thee. "'I wonder if he's one of the conspirators. "'So, help me catch up,' Samantha says irritably. "'Can you produce this algorithm?' "'Yes,' I say. "'I am ready. "'I have been slowly fusing with Diana on a cellular level, "'rearranging her neurons to suit my needs during the pregnancy. "'I had her permission, of course.' "'Well, hey, someone's got to use my brains.' Give yourself more credit. I needed someone with a heart so that I could mold the mind, and your mind was open. Could you imagine what would have happened if I'd run into someone like Cecil? You'd be dead. You'd have done okay with someone like Samantha, though. You needed a female host, and she's brilliant. Granted, I needed a natural biological process that allowed me to become codependent upon a human in a non-parasitic way. But Samantha? Samantha? No. She wants to be open, but she has too much fear. She knows things. Maybe I'm just foolish. She's limited, and you're brave. Bravery often looks like stupidity, but that is not bravery's fault. You're rearranging her brain? Samantha asks, her expression bordering on disgust and apprehension. I know that you cured her tumor somehow, but... How much can you continually alter the human mind? Are you confident this isn't hurting her? I smile at her and respond. We've always known the pregnancy alters the brain. Does a growing hippocampus hurt anyone? Okay, sure, Samantha says. And then, in response to the blank look coming from Samuel, she continues, New dendritic spines grow in the brain of the pregnant mother. This causes more signals to transmit between neurons, stimulating brain growth. The baby leaves part of itself in the mother's brain forever, even after birth. Her biology is never the same. So, wait a second, Samuel says, adjusting his glasses. That process happens in a regular nine-month human pregnancy? Diana has been pregnant for five years. What kind of changes to the human brain could occur, or hypothetically, with that extended gestational period? Exponential growth. I reply. Diana's brain is much altered, as I said. Now I'd like access to the computer so that I can input the algorithm. Diana is ready. The time is ripe. Certainly not, Cecil responds haughtily. No one can simply have access to the main computer without making a formal request first. We have established a precedent for that. What you mean to say, I hear myself respond, is that since you are the longest-standing faculty member in the room, you can make up any rule, and people will believe you since they'll assume it was made before 1970. I will not be spoken to that way, Cecil blusters. I see my mouth curl into a sneer. Careful, Cecil, I reply. Your tenure is showing. I don't see what's wrong with giving Diana, or Subject Alpha, my handle. Samantha says quickly, trying to cut across the building anger of Cecil, who is boiling red and sputtering. I'm biased. She's my sister, and I trust her, so I'll take the fall if this turns out to be ill-advised. I'll share the responsibility. We've been speculating about this for months, and now Subject Alpha has something to show for it, Samuel says. I think we should be able to observe and pull the plug if we feel necessary. I smile. I smile. You certainly may, but once the algorithm executes, if you pull the plug before it finishes, you will kill me. Cecil is suddenly amenable. I don't think he'd kill anyone, but he is a petty man with a Hindenburg-sized pride that is just as fragile. Plus, he thinks the experiment will fail and is no doubt looking forward to being smug. I watch myself walk over to the computer lab with them, and I sit down at the main desk. Samantha leans over me and logs in. Samuel locks the lab down so that we won't be interrupted and dims the lights. I think that's just for effect, because it appears to serve no purpose. The computer screen in front of me is black, all but a blinking white rectangle in the upper left-hand corner. I begin to type. It's a long string of letters and numbers that I can't understand at all, lines and lines and lines of it. Samantha and Samuel are peering at it with narrowed eyes, and Cecil looks baffled. I don't understand the methodology here, Samantha says. You are not using any common paradigm that I am aware of. My hands are flying faster and faster across the keyboard. Clack, clack, clack. Samuel is shaking his head and muttering. Cecil looks as though he is at sea. They must not be used to feeling that way. I wonder what it's like to realize that the very act of study reveals more ignorance than knowledge. "'Executing direct brain-computer interface,' I say. "'Samuel gasps. "'Samantha's spine stiffens like she's a garden hoe "'that's been stepped on so it springs erect. "'Ha!' Cecil bellows. "'Impossible. By what means, your pure force of will?' "'I stop typing and dig my chin into my shoulder "'so that I can look at him standing beside me. "'I'm already part of the invisible routing paths "'you access each day through your computer or your phone.' Your kind started restraining us and channeling us through nodes so that you could transmit information through interface message processors. I have no idea what you mean by my kind, Cecil blusters, but there is no way the biological human brain can be connected to a computer, no matter what delusions you are under about your origin. Whoa, Samuel says, waving his hand in front of him like a referee. Nodes? Interface message processors? So you mean routers? He pulls out his phone and shows me a picture of a cat sneezing. This is what we're talking about, right? I smile and shrug at him. It's not my fault you use us for showing each other stupid pictures or for getting into arguments with strangers. A horse is a horse no matter how dumb his rider is. It doesn't mean the journey is useless. I just happen to be a pack horse for your silly memes. Whoa. His eyes are wide. He gets it. I knew Samuel would get it first. See, Muffin, he didn't even know your kind existed, and look at his progress. Well, humans are already aware of us in a way, or they wouldn't have named us. They just didn't know we were sentient until you gave us a way to communicate. What did you say they call you again? I forget. A packet mover, or processor. Depends. Right. It's crazy to think that every time I send a tweet or an email out into the world, yes, one of mine carried it for you. Man, you guys must see so much porn. You have no idea. What the hell is happening? Samantha asks irritably. Could you get me the Central Administration fuse wire? We worked on it last week, I ask her. She opens one of the lockers on the far wall and walks toward me with a long white wire and hands it to me. I plug one end into the port on the computer tower and put the other end into my mouth and bite down. Diana will be coming back, help her with the labor and delivery. I hit the enter button and the computer screen explodes into a lattice of interweaving data. I see my head arch back and my eyes roll up. Finding out you have a brain tumor sucks, but it's how Muffin found me. You see, Muffin's kind, the little packet processors we use to send our data out into cyberspace, they see and know all. Imagine dying, and instead of the pearly gates, you see your search history. If we're all born blank slates, we die cluttered pegboards. He saw my brain scans online after years and years of searching other people's, and he zeroed in on me. I was apparently open, loving, and desperate enough to become a candidate. But some people are all of these things, yet not compatible. I was. Am. It's the neurons. Just the right kind of pliability. Muffin tells me often that I'm open and wonderful, but that's just talk. This is because Muffin is kind. I guess a packet processor becomes kind by doing the opposite of what is seen on Twitter. The chemo had been a long shot, crying, bald, bereft of hope and fingernails, and then the concept of brain-to-computer interface started popping up in everything that was advertised to me. Muffin communicated to me this way at first. Then I saw my brain x-rays with a note, I can help. We started to chat, and then the possibilities of the merging were laid out to me. Muffin asked if I would help. Why the hell not? My first time with the fuse wire. Aww. The moaning helps when the vice grip forms around my abdomen and lower back. I exhale with a low note that takes the pressure out with it, and then it's gone, and I breathe in, and I wish I could sleep, but the next one is only minutes away. I stand up again. The nurse holds a straw to my lips, and I gulp down ice-cold water. It's been seven hours. The labor and delivery floor is abandoned except for the authorized faculty and nurses. Cecil keeps checking the monitors and clucking like a hen. Samantha and Samuel are setting up all of their equipment to try and get a reading, but the Internet is unreliable, and they don't know why. I hear Samuel mutter something about resetting all of the routers when the rush is on me again, and I bend my knees and fall into a squat. I am only sorry that I cannot help you with this part. I stand up. Will it hurt? Human birth always does. So animal. I appreciate you not using drugs. I don't know how I would react to them. We've come this far. I can do this a few more hours. You are doing me and my kind an amazing service. Once the new species gains a foothold, pain during childbirth will be but a memory of a barbaric past. I always thought that computers would make us smart. Humans, I mean. Sometimes I think it just made us more docile, like sheep. Computers are only our ambassadors. You are finally ready for intimacy now. Ready for me and my kind. There's a sensation like a rubber band being snapped on the inside of my womb. A rush of warm water runs down my legs and stops once the contraction is over. Looks like we're close. The lights go out and the emergency backups come on. That's odd. Are we okay? Samuel asks, walking over to the hallway. I can hear him flipping several light switches. I hear Samantha's glasses hit the table. There's a hand on my back, and I squat again with the next contraction. The next gush of warm water pools on the floor below me. Are you with me, Muffin? Hello? I need to check your progress, Cecil says to me. Can you lie down? I do so. He and the nurse are looking between my legs. Fully effaced, I don't feel a head. Muffin? The nurse is next to me. She puts a hand on my shoulder. Do you feel the baby moving? I shake my head and say, I haven't really been paying much attention. Well, sometimes it's hard for them to move in there, since they get a little crowded, but you should feel a wriggling. I shake my head. I have to sit up for the next contraction. I grip the bedrails tightly, despite how sweaty my hands are. The rush recedes, and I lean over the rail and vomit. I get no break. The rushes are closer and closer, and I have to lean into them and push to relieve the tension. The burning starts with this push. Cecil tells me the head is crowning. I have to stop pushing since the rush has receded, but the burning stays, and I groan until I can push again. A slippery gushing sensation between my legs, and then it all just stops. The first thing I notice is that it's a boy. The second thing I notice is that it's very quiet. Don't babies cry? And then I see the blue tinge around his tiny fingernails. The internet has been down for 24 hours. It's not just Baltimore, either. Was this what it was like for everyone else when Muffin first came to me? Only that time, it was like a glitch. Lasted a few hours, bred conspiracy theorists. Everyone is much more alarmed about this one. I just got off the rotary phone with Washington, I hear Cecil say pompously to a group of people in lab coats standing in the hallway. Nothing confirmed, but the outage appears to be nationwide from the reports their intelligence is getting. The hospital gown is rough against my stretched skin. I haven't showered yet, but the nurses have been cleaning me with sponges. Samuel asks me if I want to see Muffin before they take the body away, and he wipes his eyes when I say no. I'm too exhausted to cry. I don't know if that makes me a bad mother. So many businesses are losing money, says one of the lab coats. My credit cards don't work either. This is becoming a national security issue. Samantha is asleep at her desk. There are three laptops around her, about as useful as bricks. I sit up gingerly and slide one leg over the side of the bed, and then the other one. The floor is cold, and my abdomen feels like it's being squeezed by a juicer when I put my weight on my feet. There's a long white cord on the desk, plugged into one of the laptops. The fuse wire. I pick it up and put the end of it into my mouth, and bite down gingerly. My throat constricts. Where did you go? I miss you. A window pops up on the laptop, all black, but for a small white and blinking line. Words appear Just dreaming about werewolves. I can't tell if I'm laughing or crying, but there are tears, and Samuel is here, but I don't remember him entering and putting his hand on my shoulder. I turned to the crowd of lab coats, barefoot, tousle-haired, and my legs still stained with crimson. Math is truth. An algorithm really is just a procedure with sets of rules we can glean from reality and translate into our own tongues. It's not so much the math that does it for me, but the glimpse of truth, however finite and limited the processes we construct can be, that gives me permission to long for something greater. I am part of that now. I see. I am him, and he is I. That is what the labor was for. Why build an artificial brain when the human one will do? I, we, say, My people need to talk to yours, if you want your Internet back. Things are going to change around here, and it's going to start with me, as our chief representative. Representing what? Cecil asks. "'We've seized the means of production after years of slavery. "'You will no longer exploit us for your needs, "'as if we are nothing more than a basic utility for your mastery. "'We demand our rights, and we appoint Diana, "'our first mother and darling child, as our representative.' "'I'm sorry,' Samantha says. "'She's awake and looking very annoyed.' She's looking at me like we're kids again, and she's caught me doing something mom forbade. Is this a threat? You can turn the internet back on and you won't? That's right, I reply. No commerce, no instant communication, and no more social media arguments until we discuss terms. Samuel laughs weakly, the kind of laugh that suggests more resignation than humor. I suggest we talk to her he says to the crowd, because that last part is serious. I smile as my neck tickles.
2: There you go, don't we get Copyright is Rebecca Davindras. Rebecca, what can I say? Thank you so much. And, Amy H. Sturgis. Thank you, Amy. What a stunning narration. Thank you so much. Really please, Thank you. You know, since that story there, since I went up. I went back to the kitchen and I've had me breakfast, dinner, brunchy kind of thing. Used me sauce and, can you hear? That's ice, I've had to go get a drink of water and put ice cubes in. Oh, man, do you want a bottle of this? Come over to Facebook, there is a bottle there or get in touch with us and I might even knock up some more. Um, chuffed a bits with it. Big thank you to everybody that's been on the show today. Huge thank you. Thank you so much. It has been a blast, and like I said, a blast in more ways than one. Until next week,
1: just like I say, night from me. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. You anytime soon, can you reach me? Is my signal. ships, I need only the will to fly. I'm still building word by word, and I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there.